Welcome to this week's episode of Zach on Film. I am Zach on the Film. Sitting across from me, Steven Schleicher. Beep boop, beep boop. Beep boop is right. And Steven all the way across the beepity boop boop is Matthew Peterson. And Matthew is on three and a quarter inch U-matic. That is a reference I don't get. Uh, big See, news. You're Nobody on else does <laughs> either because uh, analog died a long time ago. Steven's on, on, on digital. Uh, and I'm on videotape. No, this is an audio format. Entertainment. Uh, coming I'm, out I'm today is the fact that pop star Sam Smith will be the singer of the new James Bond theme song for, uh, I believe it's Spectre, right? Yes. Coming uh-huh. out later this year. Yep. The name of the song, Writing on the Wall. Writings on the Wall. Yes. Uh, the the announcement of a, of, a, of a singer... Of a theme song of a movie is kind of a, a special thing that well, only for happens for Bond. Is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now uh, we haven't actually never really talked Bond on the show unless it was in passing to other spy N- movies. No, we haven't talked Bond on Zach on film, but we did no. do um, a top five episode. Yeah, we did do a top five episode of James Bond a while ago. Oh, really? Uh, with myself, Matthew, Ashley, Victoria Robinson, and um, Jason Inman. Oh, did one top five movies. Top five Bond films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool, mm-hmm. cool. Uh, so I'm guessing probably theme songs got brought up in, uh, it, in, passing, in passing. But you know, if you're talking about top five James Bond theme songs, there's really only like five of them anyway. Oh, uh, because it, well, I, Sheena Easton. I mean, I find it so interesting that the James Bond theme song is such a big deal. Well, because it, it has become iconic over the years beyond mm-hmm. the um, you know, that uh, theme yeah. song. But I mean, you end up with some very high profile names. Like Paul McCartney and Wings and Sheena Easton and um, uh, Adele Jones. and Tom Jones and all mm-hmm. these others that then go on to turn that song into uh, a major success that ends mm-hmm. up promoting the film. And in many cases, I would say that people would recognize a song as a James Bond film without being able to attribute what movie it goes to. Interesting. Yeah. Many times the, the theme of the song is actually the theme of the, the name of the movie, though. It can Didn't be. Duran Duran do a view to a kill. Yeah, do a view to a kill. But if you ask people that song, they probably wouldn't know that it's a James Bond song. And then Thunderball, live and, live and let ball, Thunderball, yeah, live and live and let die, and all that stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Was, was it always like this with James Bond? Did it start out with Doctor No and like the, no. the theme was already? No, because if you've ever <laughs> have you ever watched Doctor No? No, I don't you should so. watch it. It's like uh, the Doctor very first one. No, no, it's not even that. It's like um, <laughs> some. Uh, Caribbean influenced, Jamaican influenced song of uh, Three Blind Mice, I think is what it is. <laughs> yeah, it is, uh, it is pretty crazy. Under the sea. It wasn't until I'm trying to think. That's it may have been. It may have been Thunderball with uh, Tom Jones when it finally started yeah. to get a huge, say, a huge thing that the song is just so, as yeah. important as everything else. Because mm. yeah, once you go and you start looking at it, there's a there's a long list of very popular songs, right, and artists that have done it too. Yeah, and it, the, you bring up the Tom Jones thing, it's interesting because he said Sam Smith is the first British male pop star to do this song mm-hmm. since Tom Jones, which was 50 years ago in 65. Yeah, in 65, uh-huh. Duran Duran aren't British? I, I don't know. Male solo artist, Duran oh, yeah. Duran, oh. a single person. Yeah. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. And I I don't know, I, do, I don't recall... You know, and again, it was the 80s and 90s when I was really super aware of the, the James Bond films that were coming out. But I don't really recall there being a huge deal about Sheena Easton singing the song. 
But I mean, there was a whole episode of Solid Gold that was dedicated to the James Bond theme songs to date at the point when Sheena Easton's song hit big. So maybe so. Because I know in just like the time that I've been aware of Bond movies, I know mm-hmm. Madonna did one. And yeah. then uh, then there's a couple I don't know. And then Adele did the last one. Mm-hmm. And then now Sam Skyfall. Smith. Yeah, she did Skyfall. Uh, and then there's like the two Bond movies in there that I didn't actually watch. So I don't remember their <laughs> themes at all. <laughs> Carly Simon did uh, Nobody Does It Better for The Spy Who Loved Me, I think. Yeah, in the um, when you look at it, yeah, the uh, very first Doctor No was a Calypso-flavored rendition of Three Blind Mice entitled Kingston Calypso by <laughs> nice. John Barry. And John Barry and Lionel Bart did a lot of the songs, uh, including oh, yeah, Goldfinger um, and then uh, Shirley Bassey performed, mm-hmm. performed most of the uh, Bond th- uh, theme songs. Goldfinger, Shh. Diamonds Are Forever, Moonraker. Mm-hmm. Um, Moonraker! Yeah. And she even did... Uh, is this what it says? Basie also recorded her own versions of Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang for Thunderball and No Good About Goodbye for Quantum of Solace. So unused song. So it looks like it wasn't until Paul McCartney did Live and Let Die that uh, this became a pretty big deal. Yeah, so we've got Sheena Easton, Duran Duran, John Barry's View to a Kill. Let's see. Was there a cool GoldenEye theme song? I'm sure. That was Eric uh, Serra's? No. Golden Let's see. Eye. If you ask me to, a song that was licensed to kill was Patti LaBelle. Mm-hmm. Golden Eye, Eric Serra's The Experience of Love, Tomorrow Never Dies, Katie Lang's Surrender. Um, I've never heard of that. Cheryl Crow had a title song. She did. That's what it says. It says uh, huh. to be the title. Se- oh, instead of Cheryl Crow, instead of the Cheryl Crow title song. I don't know what that means. Uh, hmm. Let me go down. Uh, Cheryl Crow sang Tomorrow Never Dies. There you go. Was that a Timothy Dalton? Let's see. Or was that Singers, a Cheryl Crow, that was Tomorrow Never Dies. Cheryl Crow was the singer on that. Mm-hmm. Here, here's the list, right? Okay. So here's the big list. Okay. Uh, we've got John Barry and the Monty Norman Orchestra. I uh, love John Barry, guys. Shirley Basie, Tom Jones with, for Thunderball, Nancy Sinatra for You Only Live Twice. Right. Um, John Barry Orchestra, Louis Armstrong for Honor Majesty's Secret Service. That was one of the featured songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul McCartney and Wings for Live and Let Die. Lulu for The Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, Carly Simon, The Spy Who Loved Me, right. Gina Easton for Your Eyes Only, uh, Rita Coolidge for All Time High from Octopussy, uh, Duran Duran, A View to a Kill, Aha, The Living Daylights, Gladys Knight for License to Kill, Tina Turner for Golden Eye, Cheryl Crow, Tomorrow Never Dies, Garbage, The World Is Not Enough, Madonna, Die Another Day, Chris Cornell, You Know My Name, Jack White and Alicia Keys for Another Way to Die from Quantum of Solace, and Adele for Skyfall. Nice. And now Sam Smith. Or the, singing right. the Thomas Newman song. Sam Smith, the Martian woman hunter. No, I don't know. I don't know him. So Sam Smith. I don't either. I've never. Um, heard I'm trying to think of. Well, I mean, I think we're old. If Steven. you listen to pop, I listen to pop, but you I probably just don't pay you probably would have heard. You probably would have heard it. He won a couple. I think he won like three or four Grammys last year. Uh, you see that really guy good. who acts like he's a brat pack or a rat pack guy from the '60s. No. With the slick back hair and everything. Uh, You're not thinking of what's kinda his name. With maybe. The, uh, you may be thinking of the one that had the. Um, I don't know. I mean, not. I mean, maybe like British uh, Pat Rack, Rat Pack, or whatever Pat Rack. Um, do do Pat you think Rack the the Pat intro Rack. graphics for the Bond films have anything to do with? the success no. of the of the music because i mean the, i always remember 
the graphics or the intro package, you know, oh, the credits sure. that go mm-hmm. with the songs. Mm-hmm. I think they're 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 both elements of the same thing in that the Bond films aren't really what 36 movies that are connected, but people kind of think of them as this dynasty thing and you know, it, it's kind of like what you see in professional wrestling. The longer you're around, the more complicated your entrance goes to where Ric Flair comes out to also Sprague Zarathustra and they play a ton, they pay a ton of money for that. But a Bond opening and that Bond music is all part of the grand pageantry now of another James Bond movie, you know, part of a seemingly 50 odd year tradition of Bond movies. And I'm really sort of fine with that. I think that's part of the fun of a James Bond movie is going, ooh, who's going to sing the theme? Are they going to do cool stuff? Is it going to be Timothy Dalton again? You know, you have all of these elements that come into play when you have people who go to the movies and say, yeah, I'll go see that movie. But you also have people who are like, it's a James Bond film. I'm there. I'm going to own it. I'm going to have everything. I'm going to have the record. I collect James Bond movies or I love James Bond in the films. And it, it's really kind of unique. There aren't a lot of movies that have that similar sort of movie, I guess, ongoing movie series that have that sort of cachet. Mm-hmm. Because the only, you know, would, other movie that I ever pay attention to the music is... is uh, Disney if, movies. Well, Disney, sure. Yeah, that's true. Or uh, if John Williams is doing the thing oh, the sure. Star Wars mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say Disney movies tend to have kind of the same idea of... From mm-hmm. the very beginning, they created stuff that became very popular outside of the movie itself. Mm-hmm. Whistle right. Works uh, and uh, Someday My Prince Will Come and all that stuff. That it became a big deal to go ahead and let us cash in on the music part of this movie mm-hmm. in addition to uh, the movie itself. And you get a Can You Feel the Love Tonight or a Colors of the Wind. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's cool too. You know, that's something where the music is not necessarily a major part of film anymore. And it really kind of harkens back to the days where people would go to Grauman's Chinese theater and they'd go out in their best suits. And it wasn't just a red carpet thing. It was like a huge endeavor. It was a big deal to go to the movies. And some people are totally into that. And it's nice to have at least some elements of that still around. I think that this ties into that expectation. We keep talking about, um, was it Lucas and Spielberg who were saying the movies are going to be a big spectacle thing right. where you spend mm-hmm. $80? This is part of that. And I think this feeds into that. This has never stopped for a James Bond film. You know, that music, the announcement of Sheena Easton singing for your eyes only, which, by the way, made me cry when I was 14 because I loved Sheena Easton with the fury of a thousand white hot suns. But that's neither here nor there. But yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it heralds back to the days when every part of the movie experience was a grand guignol, an ongoing thing. It was a big deal. And again, that's kind of fun if that's your thing. Will James Bond ever die? Will, the, will, these, will these movies ever stop coming out? We're, well, the are, problem is are they we've, still a big we've deal? reached a part where we are now telling stories that are not the uh, the Ian Fleming books yeah we're, we're done with the source material material quantum of solace was a short story that he pinned a title of a short story but i'm pretty sure we are outside of anything that he's ever written for james yeah. bond and certainly i believe you to a kill was one that he didn't write at all mm. uh and right. so um 
you know, as long as people are able to tell stories yeah. and attach it to a James Bond name, then yes, we'll always have James Bond movies. Now, there will be an ebb and a flow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that happens to where maybe the, uh, they aren't produced every year or maybe it will fall out of disfavor. But, you know, as long as you still have John Grisham, uh, you know, John Grisham doesn't write his own books. He sells his name to be right. put on books. And so right. as long as you can stamp a James Bond on something or a 007 on something and it has a quality that audiences expect, mm-hmm. then you're always going to have James Bond. Now, the yeah, actors are going to change. I yeah, mean, of course. Uh, you know, yeah. there's word that Daniel Craig, this is his last James Bond movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's, I think he's going to be around as long as people are willing to accept that other people can play the role. Do you think I we're agree. at a, a really high point of Bond right now? It feels like there's a lot of hype around Bond in general with casting rumors and this announcement oh, sure. of the song and Well, the next fact film. that if you watch if you watch all the Craig movies in order, I mean, the Craig movies themselves tell a very uh tell a much broader story because the ending of um uh, Casino Royale right. Mm-hmm. ties right into what happens in Quantum of Solace, which is where Spectre is first introduced is in Quantum of Solace, and then the events of that tie into uh Skyfall. And then we're now into Spectre, which is where they reveal themselves Mm -hmm. as the the big bad. So, you know, we're seeing a four-picture major story arc that deals with the rise of this entity known as Spectre. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm missing a movie. Am I missing a movie? No. No. Quantum of Solace. Quantum of Solace. Skyfall. Skyfall, And then this one, Spectre. That seemed like I'm missing one for some reason. But anyway, we're getting a much bigger James Bond story that tells something about his entire life mm, in right. these in these films. So I'm expecting that this one will be a big, um, yeah. you know, out with a bang kind of great story. And uh, it'll be hard to follow this up, if you, especially if you have another actor and you have to tell a whole different arc mm-hmm. of this character's uh, life. Because I believe the director is well, stepping away from after this one, too. Oh, okay, I don't remember cool. the name, but I'm pretty sure I thought he was. Well, and what we're looking at right now is James Bond is in one of the periodic up cycles. It's the new hotness. And there is a tendency to consider whatever is the newest to the most modern vernacular of storyteller to be the best. And that's, I think, what we're seeing when people say, I really love the Daniel Craig James Bond and I hate Roger Moore because the word that keeps popping up is cheesy. But circa 1975, that was the aesthetic they were working with. So. You know, if you look at something like, for instance, this weekend, I was looking at a, what was purportedly a list of the 75 best Batman stories ever written. Wasn't a, a one thing on that list previous to 1990 because the person writing it was very interested in that modern interpretation and his idea of best only fit that interpretation. So I think that, first of all, I've heard people complaining that uh, supposedly – Spectre may be building the Daniel Craig Bond up and back into what we expect of the the gimmicks and the Jim Cracks and the the James Bond, all of the bits and pieces. And people are upset about that because they really like that stripped down kind of more more brutal kind of spycraft Bond rather than the toys and gimmicks Bond, which, again, depending on the story you're reading and who's writing it, you're going to see the back and forth. So I would well, yeah, say they certainly yes. started introducing the gadget, oh, yeah, gimmicky yeah. thing in Skyfall yeah. pretty oh, hard. Yeah. 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 Well, then <laughs> from, from the perspective of storytelling, I think that, yeah, right now it's in a phase of popularity. Will it ever go away? Well, look at it this way. Gene Roddenberry passed in 1991. When is this new big giant Star Trek movie coming out? 
I don't know, two years. Isn't there another one coming out in like 2017? And it's like a a hugely anticipated piece to see whether they can recapture what they did in 2009 and not make everybody mad like Khan. I think that, yeah, it can definitely outlast the creator. It can outlast one actor. It can outlast a a director. But no, it's not always going to be the new hotness. And there's going to be a point where they're going to go back to that traditional goofy bond that you saw with Roger Moore because audiences are like, well, we've seen nine movies of Daniel Craig being stoic. Let's have a goofy one where he's, you know, hanging out with Buford T. Pusser and wearing clown makeup. Well, you can well, uh, nice, you know, if we're looking at uh, these four films as telling a big story and yeah. they do tie one right into the other. What's nice about and what's nice about it is at the end of one James Bond movie, it doesn't say come back next year for part two of the hobbits walking across the desert. It's yeah. just like, OK, this is the story we've told. Come back in the next one, and it will continue on from that story, even though there right. might be different villains and different plot points, but it's still uh, tying into this this whole evil right. organization. Oh, uh, so you're it's saying you're, you're, you're glad it's not like part four right. of right. the Gan- the Daniel Craig tri- right. quadro. Uh, I think that's probably how people will refer to it in the future. Yeah. But right. right now, you look at them, and they stand alone as their own own standalone movies. Yeah, and you don't as really have should. to know one from the other. And a lot of people didn't see Quantum of Solace. A lot well, of people were not impressed by that movie. I liked it a lot, especially when you're sitting there watching it, and all of a sudden they start talking about Lashif and Spectre and all this stuff, and it's like, what? <laughs> and you know, and, and then you see how that ties into Skyfall and everything. It's just really well done how they're weaving some major plot points through the movie and yeah. tying all four of them together. Well, so. I had never, I hadn't watched the two previous Craig movies before I watched Skyfall, and I love Skyfall. So I guess there is something really special happening. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you can uh, should be able to listen to that Sam Smith song sometime this month in <laughs> September. And then uh, if that Spectre, is his real Spectre name. comes out in theaters in oh, October. Man, wait for that. Yes. Speaking of ups and downs in storytelling, M. Night Shyamalan has a new film coming out, I believe, this week, uh, actually. Yes, it is. September 9th. The Visit. Mm-hmm. Two kids go visit the grandparents, and they are crazy. Scary grandparent movie. Yes. Take your little children. They'll never <laughs> want to go get sugared up by your uh, in-laws ever again. And all of the trailers remind me and my 11-year-old of nothing so much as paranormal activity. Because she wants to see it because she loves the paranormal activity. Yes, we've seen them. She loves the paranormal activity films, and she wants to see this because it looks cool like that, she said. Interesting. And I'm like, I'm like, nope. I think this looks from the trailers kind of scary. I think it does look disturbing, I looks, but I don't yeah. know what the whole thing is. If you know, if there's a mental issue, or right. you know, if there's is you know, there some an demon thing, supernatural element, yeah. yeah, or if this is all just oh, and they were pulling your leg this entire time, kids, because yeah. they told you to go to bed early. Yeah, they told you to eat your broccoli and get to bed on time. Put away your yeah. dang. Your dang, your that, dang that Game be, Boy cube that, pad. Wouldn't be the thing is that you get everybody all hyped <laughs> about how the parents are evil and crazy and all this stuff, and it's yeah. played out through the movie, and at the very end, the grandparents are like, look, we were just messing around with you because yeah. we wanted to scare you straight or something <laughs> like just, that. We were just really bored. Yeah, we thought this sounds, was going to be a really boring weekend. We decided to spice it up. so dumb. That sounds dumber than, <laughs> hello, I come from a village where we think it's 1860. Don't run me over with a Jeep. Well, thankfully, the same director is doing... This movie is that movie, so this mm-hmm. Steven's interpretation could be possible. Uh, so, so M. Night Shyamalan was doing an interview recently, and uh, if you haven't seen the trailer for The Visit, it is what I would call a found footage movie. Apparently, M. Night Shyamalan would not like people to put that title on his film because his film, apparently, 
is more about documentary format and not the artisticless found footage genre of films that we see now. Ah, oh, that is that a paraphrase. Is, I, I just know it, but I'm, pretty close. Okay. I, I found out what the big spoiler was of this movie. Oh, great! That uh, is that, a <laughs> you four purely seconds. semantic yep. argument because a documentary format in in universe documentary format is someone carrying a camera to document events, and a found footage movie like Cloverfield is someone in the movie. I mean, that's like saying I'm not a garbage man; I'm a waste management artisan. It's the same thing when you get down to it. The quality of your movie will not change based on whether I call it a found footage film. So, you know, I, I think that what that is is M. Night Shyamalan being a little pretentious, to be honest. Yeah, to me, initially, it felt like this dude's just trying to say something scandalous mm -hmm. to kind of build some hype he's for trying, the film. He's mm -hmm. putting down other movies is what he's sure, doing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, do you think... He has any merit to what he says, Stephen. Is the found footage, uh, what, it, what in his words, a haphazard and there's no cinematic intent behind it? It's just capturing something? Um, Man, we get into this whole discussion that we really probably ought to all do some more research on. But it, you know, found footage stuff is supposed to, and really this should be a topic for a show in a couple of weeks. Okay. Um. But, you know, found footage stuff is supposed to immerse the audience into this and to very mm -hmm. much like what was going on with the um, uh, Cinema Verte movement of let's 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 move the camera around so that the audience feels like they're watching a documentary like they're part of it. Right. And so then when you watch a found footage uh, movies, you're also supposed to get that same kind of feeling. Now, we can, again, talk more about this and, and how uh, Cinema Verde and uh, found footage of both uh overstayed their welcome um so yeah there is and from Shyamalan's standpoint of he's like I'd you know I I he doesn't he he's really pointing out something that's important is that the found footage has overstayed its welcome mm -hmm. and it has now started to leave a bad taste in people's mouths mm -hmm. because they are poorly executed mostly just like the they same way the the same way for the most part they're poorly executed for the same way that um, you and I don't like shaky camera footage, which is at the heart of the Cinema Verde yeah. uh, experience and what Cassavetes was doing years ago. Um, but it has become so overblown and people don't understand how to use it mm -hmm. that it has ruined the effect. Now, found footage uh, films can be very well done. The uh, vampire one that I keep telling you to watch yeah. uh, is fantastic and it is super well done. Um, but there are others that just... And don't it, work and because people think that the key to doing this is everybody has to be hand holding and it's yeah. got to be shaky and it's got to be moving around and all these things have to happen but you watch that what is it called god dang what is that vampire movie called? i always the forget cure, the strain something not Some, the strain, not the strain uh, something like that but it's a it's a found footage vampire movie that's so well done from the found footage perspective that it's probably one of the better pieces of of that genre that i've seen in a long time yeah there are obviously a lot of standout found footage film. Oh, yeah. I think Chronic really, Chronicle really good is good about 80% of the time until the very end. Uh, I've never seen Paranormal Activity because I'm a little scaredy pants, but isn't that it's, mostly it's just like home security footage? The original Paranormal yeah, the Activity original one. is, is uh, the story makes a point of weird things are happening in the house. 
the guy buys a camera specifically to document weird things in the house right. and tries to have it running as much as possible. Okay. The second yeah. one is all home security footage. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, okay. Affliction I don't is the know. movie. That I'm yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know that if, it, in my understanding of the word, that found footage constitutes a genre per se. It is a. I think it is now. Yeah. Because there's certainly yeah. so many, there's at least what, oh, at least one found footage movie that comes out every year. Mm-hmm. Well, a, yeah. a major studio but, release. If you look at like Cloverfield, Cloverfield is kind of a, a weird science fiction drama film. And Paranormal Activity is clearly a, a horror thriller. I mean, those to me are genres. Found footage is more of a, a style. And I think that stylistically, the thing that is leaving a bad taste in Steven's mouth is they're using the shortcuts of the successful ones, like, say, a Blair Witch Project. No, the... To call back and say, oh, yeah, remember that other movie you liked? This is nothing like that, but it looked kind of like it. So just watch this. And it's it's like we talk about that. They're not seeing the craft of a Cassavetes. They're seeing, hey, that camera totally shook. Let's shake the bejesus out of it. Right, and that's that's the thing. It's not that um, – my problem a lot of times, and I'm going to be getting into this in the next couple of weeks, um, is that – People look at something and they're like, hey, shaky camera footage. That's what it's all about because that looks like, wow, and look what uh, so-and-so did in in that movie. I'm going to mimic them. But they don't understand the why that you're doing it. Yeah. And if you understand the why and you understand the technique of how it's being done and more importantly, why it's being done, then you can learn to craft your story to say, okay, does this, does this scene, does this element, does this movie lend itself to this technique, whether it be a found footage plot device or whether it be uh, shaky cam or whether mm-hmm. it be, you know, whether it be everything is going to be done from point of view or whatever it may be. Um, when you understand why it's being done, then it makes a lot more sense uh, to, well, to a lot of people. It makes a lot more sense to the artist who's trying to use a tool to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot more sense for the audience who have to sit there and whether they are aware of it or not, they are critiquing that film internally, subconsciously, whatever it may be. Um, but um, when people don't understand their tools, it's like giving a monkey a, a detonator and some dynamite. The monkey yeah. lights big explosions, but he doesn't know that he's not supposed to hold the dynamite right. and push the button at the same time. And unfortunately, and when- too many filmmakers fall into that. Uh, same way that Zack Snyder made his fast, slow, fast uh, mm-hmm. uh, technique his trademark or that uh, J.J. Abrams made uh, um, lens lens flares flares (laughs) his trademark. People are like, well, it must be all about lens flares. If I throw lens flares in it, I'm going to be as good as J.J. Abrams. No, Mm -hmm. you're missing the point of of that. And that's what frustrates me the most because people are constantly looking for the shortcut to success. And when they can't replicate it, they ruin it for everyone else. But that, again, is not an indictment of a found footage genre. That is an indictment of the people working in it. And I think that when M. Night Shyamalan comes out and says, well, I'm doing a movie that uses all of the same conceits and all of the same techniques as a found footage film, but don't call it found footage, he's A, trying to appeal to the people who would say it's a found footage movie, it must be crap, and say, oh, no, 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 this is art. This is art, my friends. And again, I think that that this is an example of the kind of thing that the build-up to the lady in the water really left me with a huge letdown when I saw the movie because what he was telling us and what he was saying was all of these wonderful things and these highfalutin, you know, high theory processes that 
don't show up in that final product. So that right there is a big red flag well, but for me on a movie that I'm not going to see. Woman in the Water is not a found footage piece. It's a straightforward I understand narrative. that, but I'm saying that M. Night Shyamalan does kind of the same thing that Mark Miller does in a different direction. Mark Miller appeals to the, the slam bang, wow, this is going to be the craziest thing you've ever seen. You guys got to totally sue this. M. Night Shyamalan tries to appeal to that that intellectual thought process, that artiste, that this is an auteur film. And while it looks like found footage, it's really not. It's a cinema verite. It's a documentary. And I think that you're, you're splitting hairs there. Do you think uh, we've really seen a film, uh, a narrative type film influenced by documentary, like he's kind of saying, do you think, uh, well, I mean, yeah, he, go he look at do... all Cassavetes films. They're totally influenced by documentary films. Mm, okay. what, was where that and, what was that French uh, heck, thing even, that we uh, If you watch Scorsese's um, uh, Goodfellas, the whole thing with moving through the restaurant yeah. and doing all that, that's all influenced from Cinema yeah. Verte. That's yeah. all what was that, influenced by What was that French thing we watched? The, uh, the artist. That wasn't, uh, that wasn't French. Yeah, it was. Wasn't? Oh, yeah, okay. It was okay, it had a French guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was French. Okay. Okay, so uh, that movie, I think, was definitely influenced by as well. And again, that's more of that, that documentary format type thing where they're telling the story and they're trying to give it to us a little bit of that flashback expectation or the documentation of, of real events, quote unquote. Spinal Tap kind of falls into that same range as well. And I well, think Spinal yeah, Tap is a very well Yeah, that's a, that's a mockumentary, yeah. Yeah. But I, uh, but it's the same sort of thing. It's that same technique. It's that same aspect. And I think it really uh, works. Not in, not in that case, because they're spoofing it and saying, here's what you expect to see in a documentary. We're using that to make fun of the genre and also make fun of these kinds of uh, rock, rock documentaries that were popular at the time. That's, that's why the, there's. That's, that's the tone. That's not the execution. No, the that's execution the is part of the joke. The actual physical process of shooting the movie is not related to the tone of the movie is what I'm saying. Do you think it would be interesting if Shyamalan actually had done a horror documentary? It was actually a documentary film <laughs> about two kids going to their grandparents and all the crazy crap that happened and somehow had like she filmed it there and they just inserted little clips of stuff but it was actually like narrated by morgan freeman and they had you know all of the the solid uh documentary effects where uh oh what's his uh baseball like the, ken, the ken burns yeah stuff. the ken burns effect of all of their like tickets going to the grandparents and photos that were there you it think was then do you think we could actually realized. make a horror documentary that actually scare people yeah. Oh, I think so. I think you look at like um, uh, the one we were talking about earlier that Matthew that Matthew loves is a good example. I think the uh, new version that's coming up um, of that, uh, the paranormal activity, the one where they find the videotape that's like those twenty years not, old. Those are not what he's describing, though. No, no. I mean, like, like a, it's, oh, a, a true it, like a true documentary, like. He yeah, makes a one. documentary about a fake event of these. They take the well, same that's, that's conceit. The, but just make it like a Ken's burnt, Ken Burns documentary. Yeah. Film. So um, when, um, what was that? What was that first one? The um, witch, um, the Blair Witch, the Blair, Blair witch, witch Project. To yeah. tease that movie, to promote that movie, Sci-Fi Channel ran a documentary yeah, of the Blair Witch. Yeah, Secrets of the Blair Witch, oh, really? which goes in and, and basically 
takes the found footage and says, well, here's what really happened. Here's all the historical events and all this stuff. So they make a, and it's a, I thought it was fairly scary when you watch it yeah. before you know that the movie's fake. Yeah. You're watching this going, holy crap. And it's, it's a straight up documentary tongue in cheek. Obviously. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but you don't one, know that. So no, it's, it's awesome. super well done. It's called the Poughkeepsie tapes. That is flat out done documentary style. And it's basically a, a horror type Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger type killer. Uh, in Poughkeepsie, New York, and it's a fake documentary of the history of his stuff and the terrible things that he does. And it has that aspect of like Saw or your, you know, your Eli Roth's Everybody Dies movies. Did Eli Roth do uh, Turistas and all that weird stuff, or am I thinking of somebody else? I don't know. Anyway, he did eat weird stuff. Okay, but it had all of that, and it was done as a dry documentary with interviews with the police interviews with people who had been there, the neighbors in the neighborhood, and then tying all of these horrible fictional events and strange murders into it. And I thought it was really effective. It's terrifying movie. I wouldn't watch it in the dark. Mm. I mean, I guess I I did watch uh, the jinx on HBO and that was terrifying. Yeah, but that's a real story. I know, but it was scary. So I guess we could. Uh, And Second part of Shyamalan's interview, he kind of touched on some stuff that I wasn't expecting in the interview talking about uh, found footage movies. He talked about, he said, it's just, it would be a struggle to make the sixth sense or signs in the current Hollywood landscape because uh, the visit was only made on a $5 million budget. Uh, and he goes on to talk about how um, studios are really wanting to make the $250, $300 million oh, sure. budget film that try to bank in a couple mm-hmm. hundred million or they're trying to make or they're giving money to fund the stripped down five million dollar mm-hmm. movies, hoping to turn a profit that way. But they're not really looking at mid budget films because there's too much uh, of a risk perceived there. And he talked about something that we generally reference on this film. Where we talk about um, the budget is generally mm-hmm. doubled for marketing, which right. we got from I believe Kevin Smith referenced that a lot when he was he doing mentioned the red it, state but it tours. Also, um, I've talked about it before in relation yeah. to um, I think it was the Spider-Man lawsuit where they had done variable right. budgets, and that's right. where a lot of that came out. He, I mean, he said he's saying that three hundred million dollars, one hundred fifty million dollar uh, marketing budget, still a considerable amount of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, do you think there is this? notion that mid-level budget films can't succeed right now? Are they, they're not going to perform well enough to turn a profit that the studios are looking for? Well, for the big studios, they're not willing to take the risk. Because, again, if they're spending $50 million for the film and then another 50 to $100 million to promote it, yeah. they got a long way to go for that movie to be a success. Now, something like Straight Outta Compton proves that there are opportunities available if you're willing to take the risk. Right. Um, but I can, I can see where he's coming from is that, uh, it's too big of a risk for the studios to do mm-hmm. that. Cause if they just did everything on this mid-level range, they'd, they'd lose so much money. It's interesting because, you know, if you just look at it from my, from my, from my angle initially, I'm looking at it and I say, how is $50 million more of a risk than a $250 million movie True. when you have to try to pull in five times the box office to actually start turning a profit, which yeah. is a, in my mind, a bigger risk. But, uh, I mean, if you look at universal, what they've pulled off this year with their giant so, budget movies. So let me movies, ask you this. Can I get Robert Downey Jr. to be in my $50 million movie? Uh, if you just want to have uh, a picture of Robert Downey Jr. on the screen for an hour and a half, <laughs> then yes, that's okay. all you're going to be able to do. So the, the, the part of my reasoning on this is yes, we can spend $200 million 
because we can get all these big name stars mm-hmm. to come in for 10, 15, 20, 50 million dollars a pop and we can attract people just from name recognition. That's why a lot of times people are interested to find out who's attached to a film before it's greenlit because then they can say, "Hey, uh, we know that and there is a website and I forget, I don't have it on front of me, but there's a website where you can go the bankability of an actor to where you know, you know, what is the ratio of money spent to the money coming in and they can run those numbers and say, "Well, someone like X actor has a four to one, meaning that they're going to bring in four times the money than what we spend on them. So they can run those numbers and figure out whether a movie can even break, break even based on right. who, who they potentially have cast or what, what they and can be looking for. That's another, that, I mean, that's another example of how Hollywood gets it wrong and won't take a risk because they have established these scales of he'll bring in four to one or this will work and this will not that keeps them from wanting to take risk because they don't have to. And I think that that, I mean, the fact that that website exists is a pretty heavy indictment of movie making in general. Steven, because if you look at, I would say, Matthew, you, so you are uh, taking a stance like this uh, gap of low budget films to high budget films with nothing in the middle is a problem for Hollywood. I don't know that I would call it a problem because a problem is something that costs the money and clearly they're not, hurting under the current operational theories. But I think that it's a loss in terms of what movies we get. I think that it's the same thought process that gives us, you know, um, say a remake of the Adams family rather than a new and, and different movie or Johnny Depp putting on a funny mustache, calling it Mordecai and turning that, trying to turn that into a franchise before that first movie is even made. I mean, they are buying movies with the expectation that, we can turn this into a five movie deal with a four to one payback from from Johnny Depp. So we're willing to put X money into this. But even if you don't like Shyamalan, Shyamalan should have a chance to try and make whatever crappy movie he wants. And I think that his point that either you're making a giant, huge, epic blockbuster monogamophamonima or you're making some, you know, smaller, smaller picture with nothing in between that is a problem that does limit the viewpoints. It does limit the directors and it limits the people, the actors and the the producers and the actual people behind the scenes that we see in play. It's why all of these superhero movies are with the same 12 people. Steven, you, uh, looks like the numbers.com has the bankability, has a bankability index that they just rolled out. Uh, Oh, I guess in 2013. And I think this Mm. is the one that everyone's talking about. Um, you know, you said the $50 million budget, you're not going to get Robert Downey Jr. to get yeah, 50 million. You, I mean, you certainly but, can. But so could, if that's the factor, is if name recognition actors is the factor in getting a mid-level them. budget movies, just saying you can't have that, can't, couldn't you make the same movie essentially if you just cut out the big name actors? I mean, if, if, if the visit was with... Yeah, but so couple, let, me, couple, let, me ask you, let me ask you a question. Sir. Yeah. Would you rather go see a movie... Starring Steven Schleicher as Iron Man. <laughs> yeah. Or would you rather go see a movie starring Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man? Well, I'm th- I mean, obviously Robert Downey Jr. Because... Thanks a lot. <laughs> but... Because you'd have to be gone for so long filming mm. it is mm. why I was going to say I'd rather mm. see him. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if the determiner of mid-level budget movie is we want to make this movie with big name actor, mm-hmm. what we say, guess what? You can't have big name actor make the movie less that giant salary gap well I you mean, try could, to find that's when you try to find the, the that's when you try to find the robert downey 
equivalent. Yeah. Right. And that's where we do get some good actors like uh, Chris Evans and uh, Hemsworth Mm -hmm. and and those guys because they fall into that range of like this guy kind of parts. Right, right, right. So, I mean, you can, but there's still this risk. And again, this is all from a business side. Absolutely business. Of this is what they're looking at. That's not saying that the movie won't be successful. No, no, no. And that's not saying that people like Robert Downey Jr. may not go out and do a movie for scale, Mm -hmm. because he could, but- his agents aren't going to be happy. Well, I'm sure. All of his assistants aren't done, going to be happy. Because, I mean, he was in Chef, right? Right, right. And that was not yeah, a... I think he did that for scale. Yeah, I'm sure he was not ranking the dough mm-hmm. on that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also the question of, before Iron Man, was Robert Downey Jr. $54 million that's, that's Robert why, Downey That's Jr. why you couldn't... Uh, that's why they got him. Because you didn't mm-hmm. have to pay him that much money. Because you didn't have to pay him. And now you do. I mean, what did he do right before that? He did Tropic Thunder, where the dudes are coming out, and he did... <sighs> A Scanner Darkly, and he did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I mean, there's a lot of movies in there that are just kind of... I don't necessarily... I think he did that. Were those Zodiac big... Those, those weren't big budget movies either. No. I don't think I don't think A Scanner Darkly was for sure. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a question of... If they went into that movie, that 2007, 2008 Iron Man movie... With today's thought process, would it star Robert Downey Jr.? Because at the time, Robert Downey Jr. wasn't capital Robert Downey Jr. They also weren't. They were also Superman. were not betting that the movie was going to be that successful. No. See, and that's the thing. It was one of those medium range films that turned into a scrabillion dollar franchise. Well, that wasn't the first of the big Marvel movies, was it? Yeah, it was. Uh, okay. I mean, if, unless you want to start counting the Hulk films. Or if you want to count Fantastic Four at another studio or Spider-Man in another Spider-Man. studio. Okay. So that was that first Marvel Studios movie. And yeah. that created the Marvel Cinematic Universe with a budget of what? $57,000. Uh, let's look here at Box Office Mojo. because $150 million, $140 million for Iron Man. I'm going to say $140 million. Uh, let's see. Iron Man, Iron Man. Uh, production budget, 140 million estimate. Okay. And what did they make off it? Uh, $585 million worldwide. There you go. That's a lot of money. It's not a billion dollars. No. But you know, but if you're going into the second part of what, uh, Zach is talking about. So Mm -hmm. here's, here's the thing. The second part of what Zach's talking about in this, uh, M. Night Shyamalan, uh, interview is that he's saying that even with those $300 million budget movies, you're spending, 150 to you know half to to the actual cost of the of the movie right so if you look at iron man with a total production budget of 140 million dollars if they had to spend 100 million dollars you're already looking at 240 million dollars off of a domestic gross of 318 million dollars so yes they made 100 million dollars but man that's a that's a pretty tight margin for domestic mm-hmm. uh gross and i mean it's it's not a modern film but if you look at like um Jaws, the revenge. They brought in big name Michael Caine to prop up this this alien franchise. And it made one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. Like just a terrible movie featuring a voodoo shark. And when asked about the movie, Michael Caine said, I've never seen the movie, but I've seen the house it built. And the house is terrific. You have to ask yourself, is that a case of, well, the bankability of Michael Caine can make this terrible terrible movie float as opposed to maybe we should make something that oh, might I'm not, be something different. I'm not disagreeing with you. Mm. Do you think, uh, I'm, I've 
had the idea, and so I've been Googling, or not, uh, box office mojoing titles. Yeah. Do you think mm -hmm. the gap of film budgets that major studios are willing to fund is opening more avenues for the smaller distributors to do, you know, like Birdman had a $21 million budget. Do you think, because we're seeing those movies kind of make yeah. their way after they get their Oscar glory back into like the social zeitgeist of what they're watching. Do you think it opens the avenue for mid-level budgets from smaller studios? Boy, I hope it does because if we are going to, if, if we're going to have a, a expectation or an expectation to speak English properly. If we're going to have an expectation that these major companies, the major filmmakers are only going to be dealing with the massive blockbuster trilogies, quadrilogies, quintrilogies, the things that can make you a, a, a gazillion dollars with a Chris Evans or a Jennifer Lawrence or what's her name with a face, then there has to be a place where Broken Lizard can make their super troopers too. There has to be a place where these weird one-off movies that no one would take the chance on, like a Birdman, can show up, do their thing, and really impress people by being something that we've never well, seen before. Your super troopers too is not a good example. Do you Why? think? Um, well, I mean, so where, where are we drawing super the troopers too? Is really not, is not a is not a mid-level budget, and it's not a studio-produced film. Do you think? Uh, I, I, so where are we drawing the line? In your mind, low budget to mid budget is because I'm looking at oh, uh, once you focus, hit about thirty million, thirty million to seventy five million, I would say is a mid range. Budget. Oh, so you think anything below that would be low end, low budget? Uh, okay, and so, sometimes yeah. micro budget, micro budget films now are five million and less. Yeah, because I was looking uh, through Focus Features, uh, major releases, which they did most recently. Uh, you know, like Moonrise Kingdom, Theory of Everything, mm -hmm. uh, long time ago, Brokeback Mountain, stuff like that. And their things are generally falling in between, you know, about 15 to 25. So would you still lump that in with kind of a low-budget movie? Yeah, maybe sure. maybe 25. Sure. Okay. 25. Okay. It's so, close enough to 30. So maybe it's not because that's kind of the range of the, the, the studios I was thinking of were putting out, like Weinstein Company. They're all over the place because you have Quentin making $100 million mm -hmm. movies and then you have $5 mm -hmm. million movies all over the place. But Focus Features, they've certainly put out some uh, quality films over the last couple of years, but that's where just scrolling down their list and figuring out what their budgets are, kind of falling in that low range place. So maybe there really is a giant gap of mid-level budget mo oh, films yeah. that aren't being made. Yeah. But now you, I mean, that's, you know, from this discussion, we can see why Hollywood yeah. would think that. Yeah. Because if, especially if you look at these and look at a 20 million, certainly more than five, but a lot less than a hundred, they still, after they do their Oscar rounds, go and back and make uh, their their costs, and then, you know, they do well afterwards also. So there is still some bankability in oh, there. Oh, sure, sure. Well, that's interesting. I thought maybe there would be more mid-level <laughs> budgets when I started looking at them. I thought, oh, Quentin Tarantino, his movies aren't that much. And then I got Jingo. was like, oh, 100 yeah, million. Like, oh, oh, never yeah, mind. No. Never mind. They're very expensive. Uh, so, interesting. Will you guys go see The Visit when no. it comes out? No? No. Maybe, yeah. maybe on the, I think the, the digital? I think the, twitch is, the twist at the end is interesting. Oh, yeah, because you just um, looked it up. Well, it's not hard. Oh, yeah, well, um, I know. But uh, it's an interesting twist. But it was not something. I mean, I thought it was. I thought it was scary, and yeah. it had that uh, that scare appeal. But it's not something that I would pay money for. Mm. Matthew, yeah. 
Catch it no, later. I don't have any catch it, catch it on the TV or something. Maybe it really depends on whether it hooks me because I wasn't ever going to watch Cloverfield until I did, and then when I did, I was like, "Oh, I really kind of like this. This is this is kind of likable and weird and engaging, <clears throat> you know." And I wouldn't necessarily go and pay for a movie based on that, but if I see it, I won't automatically turn it off. I've been trying to watch Birdman these last few weeks when it's on cable, and I really can't engage my brain to it. So. Mm. If it catches me, you know, I saw The Village one night, and I'm like, oh, this looks interesting. And I sat and I watched The Village, and I got to the end and went, never doing that again. Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is is a lack of goodwill for the creator, and part of it is I don't know. Well, first of all, I don't go to the movies without the child, and I don't know if that's going to be an appropriate movie for the child. Having said that we watched Paranormal Activity together, it makes me sound like a bad parent. But I watched it with her. And we talked about how ghosts aren't real. So, no, the answer to your question is I'm not going to go there, see the There visit. was any doubt that ghosts were real? <laughs> when she's 11, yeah, there's doubt that ghosts aren't real. When she's 11, there's doubt that Batman is not real. And remember, she was 10 when we started watching these movies. I mean, you have to teach your children things, man. Yeah, I do. My kids are like, hey, is there such a thing as monsters or ghosts? No, it's all make-believe. It's fun to and be scared, then, but it's not do, real. Do they have follow-up questions? Such as? Because mine will always be like, what about Chupacabra? Is Chupacabra real? Because I saw that on the internet. Oh, what yeah, about they'll have those Bigfoot? kind of questions. What about the Yeti? What about this and that? Are and my I, toys really say, alive like go, Woody and go do some, Go do some research on cryptozoology. Hey, I say no, all of you, I, hey, <laughs> this is the final word on ghosts. Go look up the spook light. I've seen it. It's real. It's crazy. Seriously, the it's blue crazy. Blue light lady. I've seen the blue light. Uh, lady. Blue light lady. Swamp gas, man. Swamp I gas. may have been drinking, but that's not. There's so, no swamp. Uh, there's a there's lot of swamp. No there's a lot of swamps swamp. in haze, Matthew. There's no swamps. There's a lot of swamps. That's gonna be it for this episode of Zek on film. Unless, unless you guys have anything relevant desert. to say, I'm gonna guess probably not. Uh, now that this episode's over, head over to majorspoilers.com where you can find this podcast posting page. Give your thoughts. On the Sam Smith song for the next James Bond movie. Should be coming out pretty soon. I think it might be this week or next. Uh, give your thoughts on M. Night Shyamalan. Tell us if you're going to go see it. I would really like to know if you think it's worth my time. Odds are I probably won't go see it because I'll be too scared. But I'd like to know what you think. So post it there in the comments below. Uh, while you're there, go to Amazon.com. Do all of your M. Night Shyamalan DVD shopping. Grab your other copy of The Sixth Sense or uh, A Village to chuck or give to your enemy. <laughs> uh, but that's it for this episode of oh wait no I finished the Amazon.com thing Actually, you have to tell them that yes. it's not going to cost them any extra right. if you use the link but it will right. come back to help major spoilers continue week after week after week now I will say that is it for this episode we'll see you next week with more Zach on film this podcast is copyright 2015 by major spoilers entertainment LLC